Hello and welcome to Nobody's Watching, a show about the benefits of music, singing and dancing. I'm Claudia, your host, and I'll be interviewing experts, amateur dancers and music lovers to collect stories and scientific research on the positive impact of music and dance. This first series is a collection of interviews with people who used music as a way to get themselves through the pandemic. Today, I'm joined by Rick Barter, whose musical lockdown project was called Dance with Uncle Ricky. Starting at the end of March, every day for 100 days, he shared a song to dance to and a fun personal anecdote or little known fact about the song on Facebook. He numbered them and it became a ritual that his friends keenly awaited every day. I wish everyone could have an Uncle Ricky in their life. He's an endless source of fun and good stories because he's had an adventurous life, guided by the principle of doing one thing that scares him every day. I met Rick because one day, that thing that scared him was attending one of the silent disco events I had organised on a London rooftop. He came, he danced and he loved it so much that he kept coming back and we became friends after dancing together almost every week for a year. Rick is now 61. He was born and raised in New York City, but he's lived in Paris, Vienna, Beirut, Gran Canaria and London. Our conversation was beautiful and it was long, so I split it into two episodes. In this first one, we talk about his lockdown project, about what it was like growing up queer in New York in the 70s and 80s. He gives us a visual description of a New York dance club back then. He gives us tips on how to skip in public and much more. Here was our conversation. Can't do when you're on the air is do this. So I'm going to light it now. <laughs> you won't hear you won't hear the cigarette, uh, but you would have heard the lighter. Okay, sorry. It's it's very early in the morning. <laughs> well, I'm so excited to have time to talk to you. It's always such a joy to have a conversation with you. I always do a little bit of research before people come, and while I did know some things about you, I found out some even more interesting things about you that I didn't know whilst I was digging around in the internet. All right, all right, all right, all right. I thought already this interview is going in a direction that does not make me entirely comfortable. <laughs> Don't worry, Rick. It's all very innocent. All right. All right. So I can see that you have lived in Vienna. Mm -hmm. You have lived in Beirut. Mm -hmm. uh, you have lived in the Canary Islands. Mm -hmm. I know that you grew up in New York and you live in London now. I can see you've had a very interesting career in theatre. I know you had bookshops, but I've, I've seen some very interesting things that I'm going to ask you more about. Okay. Um, but let's start from your musical lockdown project, Rick. What's Dance with Uncle Ricky and how did it start? Okay. All right. Before we start, though, I have to say, because people listening to your podcast will know who you are, um, that Nobody's Watching was transformative for me. It was a really big event in my life when I discovered Nobody's Watching and started going uh, to everyone, I think. I may have missed one or two. But I just discovered the sense of freedom. And they got me back in touch with my body and with dancing and all of this kind of stuff. And and I was really into it. And then along comes the lockdown and that ended. And no more dancing. And so I, like a lot of people, I got a bit depressed. And so you were trying to do things like everyone. You know, you got a bit depressed and you're trying to find things to do around the house and you're trying to keep your spirits up. So I was listening to a lot of dance music. And having conversations with uh, uh, friends on Facebook about music and stuff like that. And I realized that I would drop a reference to say Gabrielle. I love Gabrielle. Um, without realizing, of course, it because I've moved all over the world, doesn't necessarily mean that anyone that I'm talking to on Facebook is going to have any idea who Gabrielle is if they're not here in the UK. 
So I thought, well, I'm going to post something on Facebook about Gabrielle, and then why not make it a bit interesting? And then the whole thing snowballed. I never committed up front to doing a hundred of them. It just sort of, I, it just sort of, I kept going. And so the trick is that every day I would try to find a song that spoke to me personally, that was the kind of song that made me move, uh, and then hopefully find some interesting facts or a personal experience that I could tie to the song. So it was a weird sort of combination of sharing music and a bit of a blog. And I did it for 100 days. There you go. Um, and uh, you read them, you know, and, and you didn't like every song. And who cares if you didn't like every song? Because it was my 100 songs, Claudia. So I loved all the songs. There were, there, there were, yeah. And in some cases, they were obvious, right? I didn't have to explain why, the, you know, such and such is a great song. And in other cases, they were obscure. And I kind of had to like do a defense of the song and explain why this particular song, which you've probably never heard in your life before, is one of the greatest songs of all time. And let me tell you why. I had on your um, the, the Spotify playlist that you made of the songs this morning. And even now, that Pajama Party Time by In Deep comes on and I just start screaming and dancing up and down the room. A, because it's a great song. And B, because the story I related the day I shared that song is that it was the best, it was my best friend's favorite song. And he was one of those beautiful young boys who never got to grow old. So I hear that song. It takes me back to that time in my life. I'm happy. I noticed when you started, as time went on, your descriptions for the songs got longer and longer. And it kind of gave me the impression that you almost enjoyed the, the writing more than the actual dancing. Um, so what was it like for you? Because you were also getting a lot of feedback from yeah. people um, saying how much they loved what you were sharing. So what was it like for you to put together those descriptions and, and almost blog posts about the songs and which was the one that you noticed got the most uh, interesting feedback or maybe sparked a conversation from the people following you? Well, it's interesting because, of course, a lot of that uh, a became a way to fill the empty hours of the lockdown, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. I will be absolutely honest. It took two or three hours of research because I wanted to make sure that I knew what I thought I knew about this song, and then I would see if I could find something interesting. But in other cases, it was to go back to your nobody's watching sessions. It was that sense of community. It was the sort of gossip you would say to the person next to you in the club about, oh, did you know something, you know, and about something interesting about this particular song, right? That this is a cover of a Barry Manilow song. Who the hell knew that? Or whatever. So I think a lot of it was that. And then because, as you've touched on, I used to be a librarian. I do love me some research. And so sometimes you would just be snooping around about the history of a song and you would go down this whole wild rabbit hole. The Barry Manilow example, mm -hmm. right? Could it be magic by Barry Manilow? There are seven different versions of that song, and, and you can either like the Barry Manilow one, or you can like the Donna Summer one, or you can like the Take That one, or then Barry re-recorded it using the new arrangement that the Take That one had. And, and the song is not that great, but what's interesting is the journey this song went on over 30 years. And I think part of the advantage of being my age is, um, you know, 30 years, not that long. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah, the research side of it did, and it became something I really enjoyed. And in some cases, like you said, it's like being a film geek and wanting to tell people something clever you know, right? Like a scopey tone. 
I remember there was a discussion with Nancy Sinatra about a Scopitone. And most people don't know what Scopitone was. It was a technology that only lasted about 10 years. And it, they were um, jukeboxes that played little videos, right? And so certain artists would make these cheap little Scopitone videos. So very often, if you see what was interesting when I was trying to choose the version on YouTube to share, right? You would try to figure out, okay, since they didn't do videos in 1964, where did this footage come from? Was it live on television? Where are, are they lip syncing? What's going on? And then where the Nancy Sinatra, because that's the most famous one. These boots are made for what? You've seen it. We've all seen it. Nancy's in her little boots on a really cheap set. And it was a Scopitone. And it just gave you an, an interesting thing to talk about. Did you know that there are Scopitones? And then Scopitones led me to the fact that Neil Sedaka did a few of them. And then Neil Sedaka singing in Italian. Have you ever heard Neil Sedaka singing in Italian? It's absolutely brilliant. So you find fun little things like that that you can share with people, I think. And my, my attitude was, if I find it funny then hopefully or interesting, then hopefully you will. And if you don't, we'll just scroll on by. <laughs> what, what impact did this project have on you? I think at the beginning of the lockdown, I mean, it's funny now because we're, it's been uh, a bit over a year since I started the Dance for Love Galicis, right? I, I think at the beginning of the lockdown, like a lot of people, I was trying to figure out what mm -hmm. it meant, right? And, and how I can remember having a conversation with you on the phone, as a matter of fact, about just that, trying to figure out how am I going to navigate this? What does this mean in terms of my work, my life, my, you know? And so I, I think that the dance with Uncle Ricky, looking back on it, an important part of that was that it gave me structure, right? Because I knew no matter what else I did, I had committed that I was going to post a song every day. So if I didn't do it first thing in the morning, it was on my mind all day. Oh, I haven't done the song. Oh, I haven't done the song. Oh, I haven't done the song. And in that sense, it gave life a, a, a sense of structure, a sense of normality, like pre-lockdown. Pre mm -hmm except I was having to enforce the normality. So I do think there was a, there was a psychological side of it that was, that was probably really important. But more than that, it was also just an excuse to listen to some, you know, kick-ass dance music, <laughs> right? Yeah. I often saw lots of people following, liking, commenting. Was there any specific feedback that you got that gave you a sense of, actually, this is really impacting the people who, who were following and listening to the music? Yeah, I, yes. The, the short answer is yes, right? Is it that it, reading the comments, I mean, if I'm naturally uncomfortable with praise, right? So someone said, oh, thank you for sharing this. Yeah, no, no, no. That what I would instantly just shut, shut off to that. I'm not open to that sort of a thing. But if somebody wanted to say, oh, do you remember my older sister had this album and do you remember this track on the third thing? And, 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 and you realize, okay, this is creating dialogue. This is making social media do what it can do best, mm. which it doesn't often do, right? Which is give people a chance to share. And, and the funny thing is, of the 100 songs, and as you yourself have figured out from the finger math, it was actually more than 100. But of the 100 songs, the 100 days, I only ever shared two, two songs that I didn't absolutely love personally. In both cases, it's because they kept getting mentioned in the comments, right? And they were, um, oh, Blue Monday uh, by New Order and Groove is in the Heart. I happened to have one right before I split. And I like both of those songs. I love both of those songs. But they wouldn't make my, you know, list of 100 top favorites. 
so yeah, in that sense, I was rewarding people for being involved by saying, okay, here's one for you guys, right? And then I got to warn you, tomorrow I'm doing that Barbie song and I don't care how much I ate it. But for today, you can have groovies in the heart. <laughs> That's funny. I can relate to that. I often get requests from my regulars for songs that I wouldn't have necessarily chosen myself. Um, but I always love rewarding them by adding those songs because it's it's a nice way to make the playlist more participatory. Um, and it often means that I either discover new music that I didn't know of, or I see music that I did know of and didn't necessarily listen to actively in a new way. That's an interesting theme because I was talking to, on, online social media talking, uh, to a friend of mine in uh, America that I went to university with. And he's found this whole lockdown thing really interesting because it's, he's stuck at home all day. Um, so he's listening to music that he never listened to the first time around, right? You know, a famous album from 1970 that he just had never listened to. Um, and he's been finding lots of new music and getting really excited. And I think it's really cool when you can find a new favorite song that's actually 40 years old that you've never heard before. And it's like, oh my Lord, how have I never heard this song? And uh, the test for me was always if it alarmed the dogs. Because um, if it re if I really felt the need to move, you've never seen my house, you can't spin a cat here. But uh, if I felt the need to move and I was strutting up and down the lounge, the dogs would get very upset. Although the dogs always liked and this was another one that I debated sharing because I wasn't sure it was a dance record. Uh, and then I got high. You know that song? Afro Man? And then I got high. And then I got high. And then I got high. The dogs would go, absolutely love that song. Absolutely love that song. So that was their favorite of the hundred. <laughs> That's a hilarious fact. And there you go. So I'm going to loop back to then the start of what you mentioned now, the impact that the Nobody's Watching dance sessions had on you. I'm curious to know, up until that moment, when was the last time that you'd danced and what's been your relationship with, with dancing over time? Okay, I knew this question was going to come. Uh, so I have an answer, but it's slightly convoluted. Right. Uh, I think there's two things I need to talk about. When I was a little kid, and for that matter, into my adulthood, uh, my mother had this very strange habit where you'd be walking down the pavement in New York or London or Paris or wherever it was you happened to be walking down the pavement. And all of a sudden, my mother would turn to you and say, let's skip. And she meant it. You ha And all of a sudden you had to start skipping down or you had a dilemma because either you skipped with her or you didn't skip with her and which was more embarrassing. <laughs> and, and, and so I've spent a lot of time over the years skipping down the pavement randomly with my mother. Um, and it's something, it's very freeing, right? Because you realize I am in a place beyond judgment. My mother said, why do you care? You're never going to see these people again. Who cares? Uh, so that sense of physical abandon and joy just physical joy using your body to express physical joy anyone who has never skipped down a city street i cannot recommend it highly enough although the trick to keep in mind always do it with somebody because if, you, <laughs> if you're skipping by yourself people just look at you like they're alarmed um but if you've got somebody there with you to do it right yeah so that uh matters Right. Because I think my mother taught me from early on not to care what other people thought and that I could use my body to express joy. 
to be pretentious. I love that. How old were you when, when the skipping thing was happening? Oh, she did it my whole life. I, and, and my mother died a couple of years ago when I was in my mid-50s, and she would still do it. We'd be walking down the street, or, or I would do it, and she'd suddenly say, let's skip. Okay. Right? And I'm sorry, I, there's no camera here. You can't see, but I just skipped in my little house. Um, so, so I think that is always in the back of my mind. But then you have to contrast that. And I'm sorry, we're going to get a little bit heavy here. Uh, you have to contrast that. I was born in 1960, so it's easy enough to do the math. Um, I figured out when I was 13, 14, something about myself that was very, very different. And that the world did not necessarily think was a good idea in 1974. Um, so instantly, having figured out that I was queer and I never had any problem accepting that. It was more a question of now, what am I going to do with this information? Mm. Um, you end up becoming very good at keeping secrets. And in a way, uh, the music I liked, dance music and stuff like that became a secret, right? It was, you know, okay, go to school. And everyone was all about the prog rock and all this kind of stuff. Okay, fine. And then of an evening, go home, in my bedroom with the door closed, listening to WBLS, the world's best looking sound, playing like the latest Philadelphia soul records and stuff like that. And that was really my, my uh, groove. That was where I was coming from. And then uh, along came, I went to college and then the door just slammed open. And, and then I started clubbing. And, you know, like most people, I think your 20s is probably the most social time of your life, right? Yeah. And you think, and... So that came up, I think, with the um, with the nobody's uh, with the dance with Uncle Ricky's, right? Because sometimes the memory of a particular song is, oh, let me tell you, I saw Eartha Kitt sing this at Limelight, or I saw so and so perform this at Tunnel, or one of these, you know, nineteen eighties big dance clubs. Um, and then you get older, and you and I had this conversation uh, twice, actually, with nobody's watching, where I where one of the things they don't tell you about getting older is that you become invisible mm. and you'll realize I'm in a room full of people and nobody actually sees me. It's you slowly start to fade away in the distance. So all of a sudden stuff like going out clubbing and, and going out dancing and stuff like that just becomes very weird. Right. Or it's like the, I don't know, the 50th high school reunion and a bunch of, you know, watching granddads get down. Um, so I had said to you a couple of times at the beginning of Nobody's Watching that I really, really enjoyed the sessions because they gave me a way to dance. They gave me a way to feel that I could express myself and that it was a safe space. It was a free space. It was a non-judgmental space. But at the same time, I can remember asking you, if, it, if my being here is making other people uncomfortable, then I don't want to be here, right? I'm really enjoying this. Because I, it must say that the people who came to the event skewed uh, much more, much younger, um, and female, right? There were very, very few men who ever came. And then there's this one old fat gay guy in the corner. And is that making the experience better for everybody else or worse for everybody else? And you kept saying, you don't be stupid. Of course, you should come. And then I realized that, of course, that by having it be a free space for me, it meant that it was a free space for everybody else. So, yeah, that was why nobody's watching mattered to me. Because for the first time in, oh, I don't know, 20 years, I, I could go dance where there were other people. And I don't dance well. I need to emphasize this point. 
And it, you, I know you because you organize the events, you watch more than I do. I usually close my eyes, right? And you'll know that at least once an evening, twice an evening, I stop dancing entirely and just feel the need to do a diva strut. You know, and that's fine. That's, it's got me back in touch with a younger version of myself. And with the person that I still was, it was just the person society doesn't necessarily want me to be at this point. Mm. Does that make any sense at all? Yeah, yeah, it really does. Um, but it, it's also, well, it makes me really happy to hear that because that's exactly the kind of space that I wanted to create and that the sessions were designed for. I mean, I'm pretty sure I didn't say don't be stupid, but yes, it was really important to me that you felt welcome because I wanted to create a space where everyone was welcome and I wanted more people like you to join. My objective was to create an event where all the people attending were as different as possible and all of them felt like they belonged there in exactly the same way. So, um, mm. yeah. I'm glad that that's that that's been happening, and I ca I can't wait to be able to dance with you again. I was gonna say I am so counting the days until you can start live sessions again. Yeah, um, so I'm going to skip back quite a lot of years now, and okay. I'd love to go to New York in the '80s. I know we've sure. uh, uh, so for people listening, you can't see what Rick just did, but he did like a, a little excited a little shimmy. Yeah, sh shimmy. A little shimmy there. <laughs> Uh, so I'm glad this subject excites you, but I would just love to hear from your perspective. I know we've talked about the amazing TV show Pose that does give a snippet of yeah. New York in, in, the, in that time. What was it like for you being in New York in that time? Well, I think, I think uh, once again, I think you have to, like Pose, you have to filter my answer through the fact that I was, uh, in the, uh, until 1978, I was a closeted little teenager. Right? And then the world changed. But even as a closeted little teenager, there were safe spaces to go, right? There were there were places where you could hear the kind of music you wanted and, and see and, and hang out with other people. And there's a, a BBC, I think it was one of those BBC four documentaries a couple of years ago that made this really detailed argument that disco, the American version of punk and hip hop were all born in New York City in the same year, right? Probably 1978. And that there had to be a coming together of some sort of forces in society that made that happen, right? An empowerment of people of color, uh, queer people suddenly much having a much greater visibility, and that those forces all sort of came together. And then once I came out of the closet, think, you know, it was... New York in the 1980s is exactly what you think it was, right? It was scruffy. It was horrible. There was cocaine and dancing everywhere. And I'm not going to judge the past with uh, through, through what I, the way I might see the world now, right? I think a lot of people do that a lot. And I think that's a mistake. Yeah, there was cocaine everywhere. And everyone was doing a lot of stuff they shouldn't have been doing. But it also meant that everyone was dancing a lot, right? And And... If you went to this club and it was absolutely terrifying, the kind of place you thought, I just want to get out of here without anyone getting stabbed, you were almost certainly going to have a great musical experience at that club, right? And that was part of the whole New York in the 80s thing. That there was a sense of danger, there was a sense of excitement, there was a sense of, of endless possibility. And I think all 20-somethings probably feel that, no matter where they live. I was just lucky that for me that was in New York. 
So, yeah, tunnel. Seriously, people talk about Studio 54. People talk about Dan Soteria. The New York Club of the 80s, and I cannot tell you how fantastic it was. It's one called Tunnel. And it was an underground railway tunnel. And it had crystal chandeliers and stuff. It was all very bizarre. But at the end of the dance floor, there was just a brass railing, and the tunnel continued off into the distance forever. It was so cool. Music was good. Clothes were good. Yeah, it was a shallow time, so let's get real. My clothes were good. I still had hair back then, so my hair was good. Can you give us a visual snapshot? So just walk the listener through what might have you been wearing and as you walked into the club, what might have other people been wearing? What would it have looked like? I think, I think, yes, I will. I, I will. And first of all, I have to say one word, which is platform shoes. Um, my entire life, I think in old money, right? I, and uh, the tallest I ever got was 5'11 and a half. And I hit my full height when I was 14. I tried everything to get, I wanted to be six foot tall so much I couldn't, you know, oh my God. And then along came platform shoes. And I was a towering giant among men. Uh, And so I think you've got that in the seventies, people were being very expressive with their clothing, right? So there was, there was, there were platform shoes and you were trying new things with your hair and with your look. It's when I first remember hair gel. Does anyone remember there was this very expensive French hair gel called Tenex? And this stuff could do, make your hair do crap. Um, and then that morph, morphed, didn't it, in the 80s into that sort of New York club look that you still see, uh, which is influenced by the punk scene and by new romanticism. So it was another way of saying anything goes, right? And, and I can remember thinking, you know, Tonight, I will just go out wearing all pink because that seems quite sensible. And then other nights thinking, all right, I, you know, would raid closets and think, oh, this looks really cool. This looks really cool. And just make up a look because that was the deal. You didn't want to look like everybody else. You wanted to look like yourself. Mm-hmm. And and so, yeah. And I think the thing to keep talking about, because I think this is what you're you're getting at, is just how scruffy New York was back then. Right. And so, yeah, you might be wearing a lame evening gown. Right. But you're walking past crack whores and and some, you know, Puerto Rican grandmothers listening to salsa on the front stoop. And and there's this sense of life. There's this sense of of different cultures coming together. Walt Whitman famously described New York as as a million people being alone together. Hmm. And and I've always loved that because I think that's very much what it is, right? You're 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 there and with your little circle of friends or whoever you're with that night, uh, creating an event, creating magic for that one night. And yeah, New York in the seventies was wild. And and uh, all, if you've seen the films, it really was like that. And that was part of the fun. Yeah. Yeah. And what about the dance moves? Did you notice them evolving over time and turning into the dance moves of that specific musical scene? Do you know what I will say? I, because I think that you see uh, through today, I think it was a time when people of color finally began to have enough media visibility, mm. right? So I would say on the one hand, this is a bad thing because it was racist. So there was white dancing and there was black dancing. And, and did you watch American Bandstand or did you watch Soul Train? And, and you've, you've seen my playlist, so you pretty well know what team I was playing on here. Um, and, I, and, and then the queer people came in. 
right? And and I think in that sense, the dance club, the dancing was segregated, right? And in the end, that was the famous Disco Sucks movement, right? Because what Disco Sucks really was, was a bunch of white straight boys saying, no more music by women or people of color or queer people, right? It wasn't the dance music they hated. They hated all these empowered, traditionally marginalized communities. So I think in that sense, it was a welcoming scene. But yeah, you could see a racial divide. There were very, you could tell when you went into, well, it's a habit that, that gay men to this day have, right? I walk into a club I've never been in, and the first thing I do is read the room. I think women do this too, right? To just think, okay, who's here? What kind of crowd is this? What do I have to watch out for? Hmm. Um, but I do think it was probably more segregated. Mm. And, and quite frankly, the more fun clubs were all uptown. I'm sorry. I, this is why I don't like having the camera on, because I just gave a two thumbs up signal, which I should have done with my voice. But yeah, two thumbs up, clubs uptown. <laughs> Does the Tunnel Club still exist? No. I looked it up the other day. Uh, most of those big New York venues uh, don't exist anymore. Mm. Uh, or they've been converted into something else, right? Uh, I, there was another one I can remember a club called Octagon and people were saying oh you have to come to this club Octagon it's so cool and going there and absolutely hating it uh, I think the Octagon might still be there but it might be called something else but like in London what's happened is that the gentrification that happened to New York later on began to make the nighttime economy difficult financially right these venues all of a sudden the land was worth more than they could possibly make as a dance club or as, as a gay bar, or as a woman's only space, or something like that. And I think you see that happening in London now, and I think you saw that happening in London, in, in New York back then. Right? Uh, you could see it by the end of the 80s, the beginning of the 90s. Uh, and that's fine. I think cities have to grow and evolve, and I would certainly not want to live in 1975 anymore because that was great in 1975, but that was a long time ago and the world was a different place. But I think, like I said, that, that there were exactly the fact that there was no gentrification and that there was so much deprivation and poverty and all of that kind of stuff is what made all of these venues open up. It's what made all of these young artists move into gallery spaces in the East Village because they were cheap, right? And and that bubbled, I think, excitingly. But yeah, gentrification killed it the same way you can see it happening in London, I think. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm nodding my head sadly, but yeah, do you think? I think yeah. so, yeah. I mean, there's definitely been um, a lot of venues that have have closed um independent venues have been really struggling my favorite independent venue um the jamboree had to close and then it kind of reopened as a pop-up but it's definitely is very very difficult for them to survive what i keep seeing as well is uh big corporations buying the smaller venues like i can't remember what it's called there was a great live music venue in camden that then just became another o2 uh, and I think when that happens, you know, it didn't close it, but ugh, there's just something about going to live music in an in actually independent venue that just yeah. makes it feel really different. So, yeah. yeah. I th and I think that that was happening in any anyway because of gentrification. And I think this COVID thing has probably made that much, much worse. And one of the things I've always loved about London is, like you say, that there are all these different venues for music, for dancing and stuff like that. 
uh, for theater, right? Mm. And people think that when you say theater, you mean the West End. No, I probably mean some room up over a pub in, you know, in Clapham Common someplace. And those are the sorts of little venues that were always delicate to start with that you worry about, that they will survive. But it's change, I suppose. Yeah. So I was going to say it's changed, but you can still listen to the music you could have heard in those venues on my Dance with Uncle Ricky 100 songs for 100 days. I had to get in a plug there. I'm definitely going to share that playlist. Um, mm. So just uh, for context, for people listening, when uh, Rick finished his last day of Dance with Uncle Ricky, I then pulled all the songs into one Spotify playlist uh, and they're in the order of the day in which he posted them, which means that it's a really interesting order to listen to them because they're not in chronological order. No. Um, so you could really be jumping from, you know, a, a cheesy 90s Euro pop song to some obscure song that you've never heard of to uh, It's Raining Men. So you're jumping between decades and genres and famous and very niche songs. It's it's a beautiful musical experience. You know what? And to throw, and to, to to blow my own horn a tiny bit, since I am the guest being interviewed on the podcast, I'm allowed to blow my own horn. Uh, th- some of that was a conscious decision, right? That there weren't going to be themes. That that whatever the song was for Wednesday had to have nothing to do with the song from Tuesday. And to this day, when I listen to the Spotify list that you made, um, I put it on random anyway because it just is a constant surprise. And I forgot that song was on here. And in a couple of cases, the version that you got is, you and I have talked about this, is the wrong version, but that's okay too. Uh, And I love that I stumped you with two, right? On Spotify, you couldn't find uh, Falco Wiener Blut and Dimitri from Paris. Um, I am a very stylish girl. Lounge music, Claudia. There needs to be more lounge music in the world. And that was part one of Rick's interview. Listen to the next episode for more anecdotes from Rick, including how he ended up in Yoko Ono's kitchen. 